I mean, ultimately applying to universities, if you think about ritual in its literal and theoretical term, which is a, a liminal space that has a transformational impact, I've never thought about this. I'm thinking about this out loud. So I don't know if this is true, but I think about, you know, this, these are transformational processes. Lives are being changed. Lives are being impacted. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. This season is going by fast. How do you feel, Jessica? I'm really excited. I think we've had a really good mix of guests on the podcast so far, and we have a really good mix of guests coming up. We haven't actually had anybody contact us, have we? Last week we put out a request. Not yet, not yet. Yes, get to destinybenders.com and go to the contact page and send us a message. We'd love to either feature you or somebody you think we should feature. Send us your suggestions. This is, after all, the podcast for international educators. Yes, it is. And you know what? I was just looking at the analytics and I think we've crossed 2,500 listeners already. So I think we're on our way to 3,000 by the end of the month, hopefully. This is it, Kirish. We're hitting the big time. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Let's get started. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today, we're excited to have as our guest, Marcus DeWitt, who is the founder and director at Blue Ivy Coaching in Mexico. Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you both for having me. Hey, Marcus, good to meet you. Uh, It's funny that we've kind of worked together in the past, but didn't really realize it up until just now. So kick us off. Tell us what Blue Ivy is. How did you get to where you are today? How did you get into international education? The whole story. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So I started Blue Ivy coaching six years ago. Um, and it kind of was an accident. <laughs> so I, a uh, little bit about my personal background and then how Blue Ivy started. So I was uh, born in Mexico and grew up in Spain. Uh, my parents are Christian missionaries. Uh, so I'm a son of Christian missionaries. And I like to say that uh, my parents recruit for Jesus and I recruit international students. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit about the, the ethos that I grew up in. Went uh, to college in the United States. I went to Yale where I worked in the admissions office and studied sociology and education. Trump was not quite elected in the primaries. And I was like, I don't know if I want to stick around for this. So I'm going to move back to Mexico. And I started working in a documentary film festival. Uh, documentary film does not pay. Uh, and so I uh, started a side uh, tutoring, side gig tutoring company um, so that I could travel around and make documentary films and I could have tutors in Mexico City uh, preparing students for uh, the SAT and college admissions. And that was pretty much the first year of the operation. We worked particularly with students from uh, tier one schools, the American, British, international schools, preparing them in particularly for competitive U.S. admissions. It just took off. Uh, There's kind of a white space. There's no company that was doing this work in Mexico. Uh, And so very quickly, we just started to get a lot of referrals. And so after about seven, eight months, I left the documentary film project I was working on and dedicated myself full time to building the company. That was about five years ago. And today we've grown to be a company of 75 uh, staff, 50 full-time counselors uh, with offices in Central America, just opening in Colombia and Peru, um, and working with about 1,500 students a year. And so we work primarily at the undergraduate level, but we also help students with boarding school placement 
as well as postgraduate placement, a special focus on MBA advising. Uh, and we help students apply to universities in the United States and Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia. It's a very you know, rigorous coaching methodology. All of our coaches are graduates of top US, UK universities, um, and a very personalized process working with students one-on-one -on, -one, uh, on these programs. Wow. Sounds like a, an awesome, like a really quick journey, but really awesome. And you've grown so fast. But I have to ask you this, Blue Ivy. Why that name? How did you come up with them? I'm always curious how people name their companies. Yeah, thank you. So Blue Ivy is the name of Beyonce's daughter. And I don't know if this was brilliant or stupid. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was possibly brilliant. I think the jury's still out. Because uh, I think it was kind of brilliant because everybody's heard of this name before, but they don't know where they've heard it. And so this kind of classic marketing 101 phrase, which is you have to hear a name seven times before you remember it. I think everybody's heard it five, six times. And then when they hear about us, it's like they immediately recognize the brand. So the brand recognizability and the 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 even just kind of like the trust or people's sense of kind of, yeah, I think ultimately it's about how do you have a brand that is trusted and respected? And so I thought it would be uh, clever because our kids, Gen Z, will get the reference and they'll think it's funny. The parents will associate it with the Ivy League and they'll think it's prestigious. So we'll connect with the parents wow. on the level of prestige and we'll connect with the kids on the level of uh, pop culture. Why it's stupid is because we can never win the SEO game. There's no way we can win the Google search battle against Beyonce and her family and her daughter. I think it's well, genius. I didn't know. I didn't know it was her daughter's yeah. name. Did you, Jess? Yeah. I Prestige. knew Blue Ivy was her daughter's name. I did know that, but I didn't get, I, I didn't make the connection between, you know, your company uh, and, and until you've just said it, but I think it's genius. I, I love yeah, it. I love it too. It's yeah. Fun. I mean, I was it's thinking fun. more I, Ivy. I don't right? know if it's genius, but it's Ivy fun. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was just Ivy League. I'm not sure why Blue, I was thinking Blue Bloods, you know, the whole the oh, concept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I was thinking. So there you go. Awesome. <laughs> so Marcus, yeah. tell us a little bit more about your journey then as an international student. What made you choose to go to the U.S. to study? So you having gone through that whole process, I guess, that your students and, and clients are currently going through, how did you decide upon Yale? What did you want to achieve when you went to university? I mean, you said you studied a certain subject Obviously, you wanted to go into a different career path post-graduation than you have. How did you choose what you wanted to do and what did you want to kind of be when you grew up? Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. I never really thought of myself as an international student, but in many ways I was. Because my parents are American and my family's American and U.S. education, um, all my cousins and aunts and uncles. And so I think one of the major challenges that international students face is it's, I think it's in many ways, it's very similar to being a first gen student in the United States where you're really navigating this process for the first time. And, and so I had kind of all of that uh, structure and privilege that supported me in, in that process. But ultimately, I didn't really grow up in the United States. And so it was it was culture shock when I got there. And 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 I wasn't only looking at the United States. It wasn't just like a only I was grew up in Spain, went to a British school. So I was looking at also applied to universities in the UK and France and in Spain. I ultimately chose to go to the United States because so it's funny. So my, my business partner is Alejandro. He's Mexican. He went to the Tech de Monterrey and he studied business engineering. Uh, here in Tec de Monterrey. We had diametrically opposite career counseling advice from our respective fathers. 
So his father sits down with him in his junior, senior year of, of high school and basically, you know, shows out the whole list of all the different degrees that you can study and says, puts his arm on the table and says, all of the degrees that are right here, the engineering degrees, you can study any one of those that you want. And, and my father pretty much did the opposite. He said, I want, he wrote me this long, beautiful email that I still have saved in my Gmail, which is, I want you to take classes in the history of art. My favorite class I took was history of music, because now I appreciate uh, this and that and the other, take philosophy, take religion, huge advocate of the, of the, of the liberal arts, uh, rather than a pre-professional education. Uh, so I was very much brought up kind of with the, the opposite tradition, which is you go to college to have an education for the soul, and then you do a master's to get an education for the job market. So my, my rebellion was not studying the great books, but rather more Marxist social theory, <laughs> but it's still within the same conversation of uh, critical thinking, liberal arts education. And so that's the kind of education that I was, I was brought up to value um and that i that i that i pursued and that and think the united states with obviously um promoting that type of education uh is which is just kind of jumped off and ultimately i started my process ninth or tenth grade researched a ton of universities uh fell in love with a lot of liberal arts colleges but you know when when an ivy league school accepts you it's hard to say no yeah wow that's brilliant it's so funny, right? I mean, you're you're speaking about your Alejandro's dad sitting him down and saying these are some things that you can study, but it's got to be in engineering, and that seems like a lot of Indian families doing that. Indian family. yeah, although yeah, my dad right. wasn't like that. Like my dad was more like you, I, your dad, I think. Yeah. So it's really interesting across cultures that same idea of you got to go into yeah. professional programs. But anyway. Uh, with your permission, I'd like to steal that quote that you just said about the education piece. So I'm going to use that all the time now. I think it was brilliant. Sure. Um, <laughs> sure. But having said that, so you went to college and you got a degree. As you were graduating, what were you thinking of doing? I mean, I I'm, I didn't hear anything about I, I went to school to be a documentary filmmaker. No, no, no. I don't know. I came to Mexico to learn about documentary filmmaking. Uh, I I became very involved with Grotowskian theater. So Grotowski was this Polish theater director. He was a contemporary of Ginsburg, uh, and he basically wanted to take theater out of the theater. So any kind of theatrical practices that are like immersive, experimental, from like what now is very mainstream, like the Sleep No More piece in, in Manhattan, or any kind of, anytime theater is breaking the fourth wall, this can be attributed to this director in the 1960s, 70s, um, who created this very kind of ritualistic theater. He worked with a lot of Indian theater makers. There's actually a Grotowski group in, in India that's very prominent, as well as in Mexico and a range of other, in Colombia and a range of other places. And it's this very... Um, very rigorous and very aesthetically uh, aspirational, but also very kind of new agey uh, ritualist theater. And so I got involved with that group uh, intensely in the last couple of years of college, wrote my thesis about that. Um, and our, our my, senior, my senior thesis was a nine day pilgrimage through the forests, mountains and rivers of greater New Haven, uh, where we worked with ancestors, identity, uh, performance and play. Um, and then I sat down and wrote a thesis about it and I had a really fantastic experience. I think we all found it to be a magical experience. Um, but I immediately became really troubled, concerned with the question of scale, which is, this is an amazing experience for eight people. 
And I just spent the last six months of my life crafting an amazing experience for eight people. How do we do this at scale? How do we impact more people uh, with these kinds of experiences? And so that led me to theater and film. I couldn't really figure that out. And then I think entrepreneurship has been that vehicle of world making that can have an impact. That's why I love doing this podcast. Man, I had no idea about Grotowski Theater or, sorry, I'm probably butchering his name. No, no, no. That's but a, that's yeah, absolutely cool fascinating. Like I have just learned something so interesting from you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Seriously, Marcus, she's absolutely right. Every guest we've had, they say something and I write down a, a little note here and then I go research it. I'm learning so much just by that's talking cool. about it. Kind of an so, unorthodox journey, but um, anyway. Yeah. Well, so take us then to to Mexico as you start your documentary film. You said you went to Mexico to learn more about documentary film. What did you, did you start doing a degree there? And uh, tell us about that. And what I want to know, were you working on? You said you dropped your project halfway through it because then your coaching was taking off and you focused on that full time. What were you working on that you yeah, dropped? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I did start with a few courses, workshops, um, but I was kind of schooled out. So I I wanted I didn't want to go to a school. And so I joined a documentary film festival called Ambulante. Ambulante is the largest film festival in the world, actually. So the Ambulante model is take documentary film to the people uh, out of kind of the boutique artsy film uh, theater uh, in a cosmopolitan city and to the people. And so the model of the film festival is you do a weekend Chihuahua, week in Morelia, week in Guadalajara, week in Puebla. You take all the, go provincial Mexico, and then they open Colombia. And so we would take these really powerful documentary films from all over the world, you know, things about, um, yeah, it's a whole range of issues and uh, go into a city set up in churches, uh, schools, gyms, auditoriums, and uh, do free documentary film festival. And so over 140,000 people come over the period of three months. And so I thought this would be a really fantastic learning experience outside of a school in order to learn more about the practice, meet documentary film people. I mean, they were doing this in conjunction with Sundance. So I got to meet a lot of the program directors, people of Sundance. It was very, very, a very exciting learning experience. And they also had a division, which is called their training division. Uh, and what they would do is they would go to rural indigenous communities in this addition, it was working with Afro-Mexican communities. And the idea of this uh, program was to go down every other week for five days, bring a hotshot film professor from Mexico City. And instead of making a film about the community, it was, let, let's give them the cameras and let's let them tell their own stories and teach them how to, how to, how to tell stories and then promote their films on this uh, stage of the National Film Festival. Um, so really exciting project. And again, I thought it was a really interesting way of learning film outside of a classroom, which was kind of traveling around rural Mexico, meeting, you know, working with these, the best Mexican uh, documentary filmmakers. Uh, and so I did that. I did that for for a while. And, and, and it was great. I mean, it was a really special experience. It's a really unique way of traveling a country. It's, it's very different to travel for tourism than to travel and like meet with like local mothers whose children were disappeared by the government. And that being your way of me <laughs> of, of getting to know your way around a country. So it's it, it was a very powerful way. So it was less that the uh, I had a personal project itself that wasn't panning out, but rather I felt like everything that I wanted to do via Via film was starting to happen via entrepreneurship and via education. So for our work being one-on-one -on -one is kind of that 
that magical space of ritual, which is, I mean, ultimately applying to universities. If you think about ritual in its uh, literal and theoretical term, which is a, a, a liminal space that has a transformational impact, I've never thought about this. I'm thinking about this out loud. So I don't know if this is true, but I think about, you know, this, these are transformational processes. Lives are being changed. Lives are being impacted. And you do enter into this interesting in-between space between your country and another country where you're visualizing and, you know, creating fantasies of what your life could be or what your life will be. Uh, You're articulating your narrative. And in that kind of space, especially with that essay writing that you do for the United States, which is very creative think, creative writing, the college essay process in the United States is very, is a very creative process. So I found a lot of magic in that one-to-one space with students that ultimately does have that kind of transformational impact in the life of the other, but it's also something that you can do at scale. I mean, over the last five years, we've done a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand hours of one-on-one coaching. And so that's uh, a little bit more than just doing a theater process with eight, 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 eight friends. Uh, yeah. And so I, I found that 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 the answers I was looking for, the questions that I was asking documentary film were being answered in education, particular international education. Okay, well, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you, how do you go from such a passionate interest you had in documentary filmmaking, especially you know telling the stories of the people by the people to education counseling. So you kind of answered that, but I still want to dig into that a little bit. You're absolutely right. It's a transformational experience. All of us who come as international students, our lives are changed. Hence the title of the podcast, right? Destiny mm-hmm. Benders, you're bending people's destinies and all of that. So talk to us a little bit more about that, right? And I don't know if I buy it completely, and hear me out for a second. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm I'm idolizing this concept of documentary filmmaking, which is so powerful. You still want me to make films? <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's where I'm going at. That's where I'm going at. Okay, so you get it. So I think you should. I think you should. But having said that, tell us a little bit about this destiny bending work that you've you know accidentally come into, and all these people that you're working with and working people working for you, helping all these students, um, and you know maybe couch that in this whole concept of overseas education, particularly in the U.S., being so nuanced and so expensive and the test optional movement. I mean, so many things happening right now in our field. Mm-hmm. Bring it all together for us. And what's your philosophy on that? And what do you see moving forward is going to happen with all the work you're doing, the work we're doing together? Yeah, super interesting. So for example, while a university student, I did SAT prep tutoring and independent college advising. This is always kind of my side gig. So it's very natural for me to kind of start this as my side gig when I was in in the documentary film space. And doing this work in the United States is very different than doing this work uh, internationally. When you do this work in the United States, your advisement, your support is listened to, especially if you have certain credentials, but it's placed alongside the advisement that you receive from your school college counselor, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your your big siblings, friends, everybody else who knows this process and has their own particular philosophy. And so ultimately, college counseling is, I think, acquired in the United States with this kind of very elitist, let's get an extra edge uh, in competitive application processes and then kind of feed a narrative of rat race and um, kind of a a meritocracy that I don't necessarily believe in. Um, Doing this work internationally is... I think essential work because 
Uh, and this is coming back to what it, working with international students is very similar to working with first-gen students, which is the parents have never navigated this process. They're, we work with many students who are their only students of their schools doing this process. Uh, and so they do, it's a, it's a self-selecting group. They don't have to do this process, uh, but it's self-selecting. And so the types of students, the type of work, the the tone, the style, the aesthetics of the work is very is very necessary. I mean, it's it 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 plays an essential role in guiding students. These students would not be able to do this process, um, certainly not as effectively, efficiently, and successfully. But I think ultimately, just would not be able to do it at all uh, if they didn't have someone with that experience guiding them. I mean, I think it's like trying to fill out your taxes for the first time. <laughs> you need an accountant. Uh, and as in basic, that doesn't sound as, as artful as my previous description, but at the end of the day, it is a necessary professional service um, to, 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 to guide students. And so we started off kind of, as mentioned, working with a very, not only academically, but also socioeconomically high profile student that was competing for top US and UK universities. Um, and that was kind of the brand. And that's how we started. About three years ago, um, I get an email from an account manager at Shorelight, uh, the regional account manager saying, I'd like to introduce you to our, kind of our company. And that first, it was right after the college admission scandal. And I was like, this is a fraud. I'm not going to respond to this. But they sent a couple of follow-up emails and kind of introduced us to the world of recruiting. And initially, we we didn't really know how to engage with it because our um, ethos and culture philosophy was very much about charging the client a fee and guiding them towards competitive universities. And ultimately, after better understanding the model, we realized two things. One is there is a whole world of universities that are amazing options and amazing fits uh, for students. And there's a whole world of, of different kinds of student profiles that we might not be working with. And I think this be, this has become very important for us, our recruitment division. I mean, on a level of like, what is our mission, our vision? A lot of our own language has changed about what is the purpose of the work that we're doing. Um, and also on a level of business. I mean, I think ultimately, if you're able to not only work with the top 1% uh, of a country, but also work with the top 15%, Sure, you're still working with a minority, but ultimately that creates a whole opportunity to, to help um, hundreds of thousands of more students uh, in a region, and obviously millions across the world. Uh, and so we then, you know, with recruitment partnerships starting to pair up, obviously not, we don't charge the client a fee, we receive the, the, the payment from the university. That's really a facilitated us uh, to work with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a much larger group of students. And so... We're, we work closely with, for example, schools in Texas or in Florida that offer in-state uh, tuition to Mexican or Latin American students. And so uh, the top university, the Tec de Monterrey, costs $15,000 a year. Well, if you get a 3.0 GPA and a 1200 SAT, you can pay in-state tuition at any public school in Florida and be paying $6,000 a year to study in Florida. So, the, you know, there, there really are fantastic opportunities. We now partnered with Fundación Carolina in Spain, uh, which provide boarding room and board scholarships so that people go to uh, public universities in Spain. So university is tuition free and then they get a scholarship. And so... That's a, a, a growing part of our uh, of our business is um, working with middle class, upper middle class families that previously um, the model itself and the program itself didn't permit. So that that's I think that's been an important pivot. And then our most recent pivot has been now starting to offer these services B two B to schools. So for example, the Escuela Americana, which is the American School of El Salvador the largest and most prestigious school of Central America now outsources all of their career orientation and counseling to us. 
so instead of working with a family on an individual level and having those individual clients, the school is our client. Um, we start working with the students from ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, uh, team full-time counselors uh, that are doing this work with students. And it's a really exciting model as well. I think this is the, it's the only partnership of its kind in you know, in, in, in Latin America, I've seen one or two schools that are doing something similar in the United States, one or two schools in Africa, one or two schools in India. There's no more than 10 schools in the world that are doing this model. Um, and so now we're starting to, to scale that and going to uh, conferences with heads of schools of uh, international schools across Latin America in order to try to now do more institutional sales. I think this is a really good segue. Uh, you mentioned your recruitment arm or, you know, beginning to do that. A good segue to what I wanted to ask you about was last year at the Pioneer Awards, Blue Ivy Coaching won the Student Recruitment Agency of the Year at the Pi Awards. How did that make you feel? Tell us a little bit about that. I, I was there in the audience. So I remember, you know, seeing you um, run up to get the award and I would like to ask as well, along with that, I, I can understand now you explaining everything that Blue Ivy Coaching is doing, why you are different. Um, and that award, you know, was very justly deserved. Who in your life can you think of has bent your destiny to lead you to where you are? I think if, is there somebody who really stands out and particularly in conjunction with Blue Ivy Coaching, because you know, you're getting these ideas from somewhere. I remember when I talked to you when I was working at the University of Texas in San Antonio, and the things that you guys were doing were so different from anywhere else that any other, you know, recruitment agency or consulting company that I had worked with or heard of. So I'd be kind of interested to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. So first, the the, the prize ceremony itself was, uh, was a blast. And first, just on a personal level, this was kind of starting to come out of the pandemic. Um, I had not seen my family for a year and a half. All my family is based in Europe, and I'm based in Mexico. So I hadn't seen my family. The UK changes their uh, travel policy. They put Mexico on the red light. So a week, two weeks before the ceremony, me and my business partner have to do quarantine for 10 days uh, in Germany. So we're working Mexican hours, but doing quarantine, fly into the UK, haven't seen, and I invite all my family. It felt like a high school graduation where I have a table with just me and my family. Where no, no one else is bringing their family to this kind of event. But I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill two birds with one stone and do a family reunion at the Pi Award ceremony. And then when, when we get the prize, everybody stands up and cheers, and we're dancing. We just had a great time. And and I mean, of course, the recognition is always great. I think ultimately for us, it was. We've been in the trenches uh, uh, helping students in Mexico and, and and now more Latin America for the last five, six years and working on individual processes, working on our methodology, building the business. And I think that really was for us the first time we kind of like looked up, turned around and we're like, oh, the, the, there's an industry here. Uh, there are people who are who are curious about our work and are interested in seeing what we're doing. It's the the kind of first time that we ever really got on the map that people outside of Mexico heard about us, knew about us. Uh, so I think it was it was it was really pivotal for us uh, in in the sense of the conversations that it started to facilitate new partnerships and also starting to have a little bit more of a platform to kind of share, kind of mention our our unique approach to uh, advising and recruitment. Um, and our and our process of advising recruitment is focused very much on, and I just like I just like this phrase like the magical experience, which is going to university abroad is a huge 
commitment, financial commitment, emotional process. And I started to observe how in other, um, maybe, 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 maybe certain, certain practices either by university partners or other agencies were being done in a very transactional way, um, such as, you know, you come into an education agency and you say you want to study in Boston and they pull up, it's like a catalog as if they're like a real estate agent, uh, with here's the catalog, here's your options, here's this, here's the other, your acceptance letter is we get a PDF from the provider and then we're supposed to forward this pdf to the student and we're like no 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 this is a life-changing event this is a huge commitment and obviously if we want to get this student to convert we need to make them feel super special i remember the day that i got into college it was a huge life-changing event for me and i want to create that same experience uh, for every one of my students and and so our whole philosophy is about creating making this process special. I was just just on a call last week where I was talking to people about Navitas of how, you know, in the United States, many public universities have this uh, concept and practice of the honors college. So UVA has an honors college. UNC most public universities have an honors college. If you get accepted into an honors college that's that's huge that's a big deal and what is the honors college you have smaller classes you have access to uh, academic advisors you have personalized support um you might have a guest workshop conference and so you know think about it like isn't that a pathway i mean in a pathway you have a small you have small classes access to advisors extra support and so this this narrative of the pathway is really and officially about easier access when it should be about prestige, when it should be about aspiration. Studying abroad at its most basic level is an aspirational process. Nobody is, at least in our markets, are studying abroad because they want an easy route. They want to study abroad uh, because they want to aspire. And so reframing even the pathway as an honors college, but, but that type of philosophy and vision is something that resonates very much with us, which is an aspirational special process that we create through our own advising, through our own ethos, and then through our own um, recruitment events, our own conversion events. Uh, when it was the pandemic, we would send kind of a, a couple of people on our team in a car to knock on when you couldn't really leave the house and we're in, we're in lockdown, we'd show up to the person's apartment or building your house and blast music and have balloons and everybody in their face mask and deliver their acceptance letter and say, you know, you're in this new virtual reality. Nothing is real. It's all screens. Like, no, let's bring the body back. And here's your acceptance letter. And congratulations, you're going to Chicago. And, you know, we'd play Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, and deliver the acceptance letter from Pace. And I mean, these are magical moments that we can create for our students that ultimately that's what this is all about. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh, that sounds so amazing. I'd have to push back on one thing, right? And coming from my perspective of working with some of these pathway programs and what I know about it, you're absolutely right. It's a magical experience. It's a magical time when you're making that transition to college, especially going overseas when you've never been to that country. But what I've also noticed that the pathway programs, for the large part, have been created so that the institutions can expand their enrollment for maybe under admissible or not college ready yet and put it under the guise of this pathway program and it's revenue generation. I mean, we could talk about the dark side of it maybe on another day, another call. No, of course, of course. How do you it's reconcile? I love, I love the spin. I, maybe not the spin. I love how you're changing the perspective 
of what that is. It is, right? I don't care if as an international student, you come from Delhi or uh, Monterey, you come to US, the UK, wherever, it doesn't matter if you're at Yale or at a community college. It's a life-changing experience. So I love the perspective that you're putting on it. But how do you reconcile that little dark side of things to say, you know what, maybe the student would be better suited at another kind of an institution uh, as opposed to the pathway companies steering the student to certain institutions in their programs? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think with the first part, which is like, I don't think that access and aspiration are at odds. Um, I think what we see in our market is, for example, our students have the level of English. They don't they don't need the ESL part of the pathway, but they need the academic support. I mean, Latino, in, pr- in particular, privileged Latino students need hand-holding. Uh, they need a lot of support. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a tough market to work in, in that sense, where this is not a market where a B2C marketplace for university recruitment will succeed. And I'd love to talk about Applied Board. But uh, coming back. <laughs> we'll do a whole other podcast on that market. <laughs> uh, but coming back, I don't think access and opportunity are in that sense are at odds. And I think ultimately, I think it's ultimately about what do we need to do as a university to set students up for success? I think that's ultimately the premise of the pathway. And I think that's fantastic. I think we can also set students up for success uh, within kind of a, a reframing and a narrative of aspiration. Um, and I think that that is that is something that if, if we can put those two together, then that's then that's that's what that's what international students need. And that's what universities want. That's good. That's good. But you know what? I didn't hear you answer just question about a specific person that has changed your life. Yeah. So I had a I had, I had a mentor uh, in college who continues to be my mentor. He's a Japanese Spanish. His name is Yasushi Javier Tanaka. Uh, and Yasushi is someone you should definitely invite on your podcast, not involved in international education, but he's a character. Uh, Yasushi is the one who will push you to keep talking uh, about these issues and until 2, 3, 4 a.m. And you go to bed exhausted and then you hear him at 8 a.m. on the phone with someone else, continuing to go for it, pushing them uh, to actualize their desire and, and aspire for excellence. I invited him uh, to come visit me in Mexico. He stayed for a month and it was the most exhausting month of my life. <laughs> uh, so I think in just kind of that relentless pursuit of excellence, that relentless pursuit of creativity, pushing yourself, non-conforming. I've been blessed to have a really great mentor. Absolutely. And now that you say that, I I can see his influence in your work, not knowing him at all, obviously, because again, I'll go back to when I met you when I was at UTSA, the things that you were telling me that Blue Ivy coaching was doing, it was so different, so nonconformist, so out of the box. I was so impressed. And so I guess now that you say Mr. Tanaka, can I, is that what that yeah, would I call it? Yeah. Cause I can't remember his first name. <laughs> yes, 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 sushi. Yes, sushi. Yeah. He's probably listening to this. <laughs> yes. Hi, yes, sushi. Apologies. Yeah. Great. I mean, the kind of mentor. So for example, I used to do, a, I used to have a podcast with him, a radio show with him. And we would also on a weekly basis, we'd invite a guest and kind of the theme of that podcast is we, we'd ask them to bring a song that in that moment they, they were connected to. We'd listen to the song. They'd share why they were connected to that song. And then that would kind of lead us into a very chaotic conversation where we would be pushing each other to try to 
give birth to some truth in the conversation. Anyway, that was, it was a very, very exciting space. And I think a space also of mentorship. And, and that's why I love you guys' project. It kind of reminded me of that a little bit. You guys are a little bit more professional. Um, but... <laughs> Somewhat, maybe I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that at all. <laughs> and so for my, for my second season, uh, I, I did a 24 hour marathon Whereas 24 hours of radio where I was inviting guests after guests after guests for 24 hours straight. Yasushi at this point had already moved back to Japan. He finished his, he was a PhD student while I was undergrad. And he sat there in his house and listened to all 24 hours and was just commenting in the chat box and sending me messages being, keep pushing, keep pushing. You're being easy on this guest, keep pushing. And so uh, that type of mentorship of having someone in your corner that is giving you that, that message constantly. We, we need people to push ourselves uh, to, to, to reach. I think ultimately it's on different levels. It's not just about excellence. Uh, it's just about actualizing our desire, potentializing our desire. And I think ultimately that comes down to a lot of what we do in our coaching, which is we see a lot of students and parents. I mean, in these processes, fears come up quite a psychoanalytical process in a certain, in a certain sense, it's really not recruitment. It, it is, it is way more about uh, guidance orientation in, in Spanish. We have the phrase acompañamiento, which is to, to accompany someone uh, in, in a really holistic sense. And I think in that sense, there's all these spaces for uh, fears and traumas and paranoias to come up. And at the day, you just have to, you know, keep, keep pushing your students so that they get the test score that they need. Uh, they develop the, the personal statement with, you know, kind of the, the focus that they need, um, that they're, our aspirational and, and reach for the highest level of university they can aspire to. I mean, it's ultimately just pushing each person to be, to be the best they can be. Yeah. Man, if I'd known that, I would ask you tougher questions. Um, <laughs> Come on, bring it, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> bring it, right? We're, we're running out of time here. We only had you for an hour. So as we always do, we try to end the podcast on a lighter note, but it's been a lighter conversation today anyway. Um, so I'm always curious about, you know, we asked these quick fire questions and we want to ask you a little bit. My first question to you is, if you had to go back and film a documentary, <laughs> what would it be about? Oh, damn. Um Well, I'll jump in with my quick fire question, which hopefully won't stump you. Um, it's also about documentary filmmaking because I am truly fascinated by this aspect of your background. What's your favorite? What's your favorite documentary films? There's was there one that you saw that was like, this is a, a this is a life changing film. I want to go into this field. What what's your number one? Yeah, totally. Um, the act of killing. Uh, by Joshua Oppenheimer. The act of killing is very intense. So Joshua Oppenheimer is, I think he's a American or British anthropologist who moves to Indonesia, lives there for 10 plus years, um, and kind of becomes buddies with uh, uh, several of the sort of the people that enacted kind of the killings of accused communists in Indonesia. Um, so with the, the, the basically the, the torturers. And instead of interviewing them, he recreates a scene kind of theatrically where like takes them into a torture chamber and asks them to explain what are the acts that they would do. And these, uh, these, these people would you know, speak about it with bravado and pride and yeah, then we would do this and then we would do that. Um, and so just kind of reenact this, you know, psychological state of terror 
uh, on the screen and then done in such an intense theatrical uh, techniques is it's really powerful. Um, I I fainted after seeing the film. Um, no. First I vomited and then I fainted. Uh, no, well, I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> it was super, uh, super intense, super powerful. Um, got to meet the documentary filmmaker as well when he came to school and talked wow. about it. And people were really upset at him. People were really upset. It, it doesn't do the, the the kind of the traditional documentary film because it's you're you're reenacting. You're not this passive. Just I, you're, the documentary filmmaker is a is a, is an active participant um, in recreating. You're not just narrating history. You're recreating it. And kind of kind of at least you're simulating it. And so it really plays with the form. It really plays with the ethics uh, and just visually, it's super compelling. Oh, wow. These are supposed to be light questions like my <laughs> 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 well, great for great recommendation i will check it out i'll make sure i do it on an empty stomach uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. i want to go back uh, my, my final question to you is so you speak about mr tanaka right this mm-hmm. this mentor who's been in your life uh, i'm sure he said a lot of things to you especially the month when he exhausted you and probably exhilarated you as well during that yes. month Yes. Pick a favorite phrase of his that he says to you. What is it? When you exhaust the body, when you exhaust the mind, you find the soul. Ooh, I like that. Wow. Mm-hmm. How do you take it? What does that mean to you? So first, the body, I interpret that, and especially initially on a level of theater, which is Grotowski had the same principle. Grotowski would work a lot with fatigue. I think fatigue is a, is a very interesting kind of concept principle to work with, at least artistically. I don't know what it means in education, but at least artistically, uh, which is kind of, you know, re- reaching that kind of that stretch. Um, the mind, you know, obviously, I mean, I think I think the mind part ultimately has to do a lot of even meditation practices, which is, you know, the ego uh, and the speak rationality. And so when you overcome a limitation of the physicality, which obviously many practices spiritual, religious, artistic music have to do with overcoming kind of physicality. You overcome physicality, you overcome rationality, you kind of reach up a place of spirituality. Brilliant. Amazing. <laughs> you guys got to have him on. <laughs> oh, yeah. we absolutely will. You, I'm just you, a you disciple. <laughs> yeah, send me Maybe. his email or whatever. Yeah, Introduce absolutely. us. He, he, he graduated and then he went on his quote unquote into the wilderness for eight years. He did nothing. He sat on his couch in his house, meditated and did nothing. And he's just re-resurged and he's starting a venture capital firm. He has a thesis that we're stuck right now in the tertiary loop where you have like primary sector, secondary sector, primary sector obviously being agriculture, natural resources, second sector being manufacturing, uh, production, tertiary being services, quarter A being technology, but cancer, but all of this is just the same loop. And if you think about kind of what the future is, all of our future that is promised to us is just tertiary. It's AI, it's just better services. It's it's, it's just renditions and renditions and renditions. So we're on this infinite tertiary loop. And so he has this thesis that I don't really understand, uh, which is that we need to return to the primary uh, in terms of economic cycles to break out of this cycle. So he's uh, starting a VC firm in order to invest in primary sector startups um, and from there, see if we can break break out of tertiary. So you guys got to have him on and listen to his thesis. Fascinating character. He's been hugely influential to me. Uh, a, a, a real teacher. My Please mind is share. blown. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I had one of those emojis right now with the little head popping <laughs> yeah, off thing, right? that's what that's what I'm doing. I don't know if you can see my face. I'm like my jaws <laughs> on the floor. So wow, man, Marcus, this is brilliant. This has been just an amazing conversation. Thank you. No, thank you guys. Thank I, you I, I I feel like yeah. it's been one-sided and I'd love to like I I really enjoyed throwing the Not questions back at you because I wanna I want to learn from you guys. You guys are, I'm sure, mentors as well. Well, I'm oh, sure we'll be working together, you. especially on the documentary. We're gonna do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Do that. yeah, yeah. I can I'll see it in your eyes. <laughs> my so, brain's already spinning buddy. you got smoke coming it. out of your ears at this point <laughs> i love it i love it I exactly love it, well this has been great thank you so much for your time today absolutely thanks marcus all right take care see you guys bye thanks for listening to destiny vendors next week girish is in india And I'll be in Toronto, coming to you from the Pi Live North America, hopefully speaking with fellow international educators and learning about their journeys. Join us. Join us.